You're listening to Wonder Cupboard. What is science? Where does it come from? Is it a cupboard? Hello, this is Wonder Cupboard, the podcast that answers the question, somewhere over the rainbow, bluebirds fly. Birds fly over the rainbow, why then, oh, why can't I? with a discussion about how, in order to lift your mass, your wings would have to be so large that you wouldn't have the muscle strength to lift them. Uh, my name's Ian. And my name is Elena. Uh, what are we talking about this week? So this week we'll be talking about mesmerism, which is a precursor of modern hypnosis. We're going to talk about the practice itself from its beginnings and how it ended up being used for pain management, influencing early neuroscience, even getting tangled up with mysticism and social justice. Sounds good. Yeah. It all began in Swabia, in modern Germany, around the middle of the 18th century. A man called Anton Mesmer... That's the name of the episode! <laughs> so he was studying medicine in Vienna. In 1766, he graduated with a thesis on how the moon and the sun influence bodily fluids. Basically, his argument was that if their force is strong enough to influence tides, then they must have an effect on animals as well. He noticed that some of his patients had ailments that changed with the lunar cycle and thought this might be the reason. Then he came up with a force called animal gravity, and I quote, which is the cause of universal gravitation and very probably the basis of all corporeal properties, which indeed, in the smallest particles of the fluids and solids of our organism, stretches, relaxes and disturbs the cohesion, elasticity, irritability, magnetism, and electricity. And that's the end of the quote. This was very mainstream and purely based on Newtonian physics, so no one raised an eyebrow. Yeah, it sounds legit, you know. <laughs> In the same year, Henry Cavendish at the Royal Society discovered hydrogen, so they must have just been thought, well, if exploding air is a thing, why not <laughs> yeah, exactly. animal stuff, <laughs> gravity? And, you know, no one knew anything, so might as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, so he was like, cool, we've got animal magnetism. Let's use this to heal people, right? So since the bodily tides allegedly had an electromagnetic character, he thought that you could influence them by placing magnets on specific body parts. So you could redistribute those fluids that were out of whack, causing illness, and cure people that way. And he did. His first patient treated this way was a Mr. Oesterlin, um, which suffered from a chronic condition that caused excruciating pain in her teeth and ears, as well as delirium, mania, vomiting and fainting. Classic. <laughs> the treatments lasted two years. Apparently got worse before it got better. She is said to have improved in the end. Yeah, the pain went away because she died of boredom. <laughs> yeah, like, I can't imagine that being a fun thing, it really... Can you like just some guy placing magnets on you? Yeah. And going, is this working yet? Is this working yet? Oh, well, I'm vomiting this morning, but at least the man with the magnets coming around again <laughs> for the 600th time. <laughs> so this, this worked for him as well because it allowed him to enrich his theory. The reason why people became ill according to this theory, was that the magnetic fluid wasn't flowing properly, so you had to restore the correct circulation. Health was achieved by getting the nervous system to be in harmony with the universe. I think that's what I do when I wake up. 
like five <laughs> minutes of trying to get my nervous system to be in harmony with the universe. Do you use magnets? Uh, no, I don't, but maybe I should. Yeah. Magnetic pillows. <laughs> I, that's definitely a thing. You can definitely buy a magnetic pillow, I'm sure. I reckon you can, yeah. Mm. You could have magnetic cereal bowls. Uh, yeah. That would be great. So you could magnetize the milk and say, oh, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Okay. Teaser. Teaser. So since this newly discovered force acted on nerves, it couldn't be your just run-of-the-mill magnetism, which acts on some metals, as we know. So he called it animal magnetism. Then he realized, don't ask me how, this whole bit is quite blurry, that you could magnetize other materials as well. See, <laughs> like the milk in your cereal bowl. Okay. Uh, so materials such as wood, paper, bread, <laughs> wool, silk, leather, stones, glass, water, but also metals. So, bread. Bread. Genuinely, he was just prodding bread with a magnet. Yeah, and I don't know what kind of effect he was expecting. (laughs) (laughs) It worked. Like, nothing happened to this bread and nothing happened to the other thing that I attached this bread to. (laughs) A resounding success. (laughs) Now, where are my stones? So, yeah, the whole thing is bizarre. But anyway, he decided that the substance that had been magnetized could act as a magnet on people's body fluids. Because why not? Mm. So you could magnetize a piece of paper and then use that to heal someone. And here's the kicker. You could also magnetize a person or an animal and use them as magnets. Make sense? No. (laughs) But evidently it made sense to him at the time. Yes. And actually it turned out to be quite useful later on. Uh, Mesmer published his discoveries, treated patients, especially with eye complaints with moderate success, started travelling internationally to present his findings to colleagues. Then for various reasons, including wanting to be separated from his wife, in 1778 he decided to move to Paris. Classic get-away-from-your-wife move. You hear it all the time down down the pubs, particularly in Austria. Oh, yeah, mate, the old ball and chain's giving me a bit of trouble. Might uh, pack up and head to Paris. Yeah, mate, yeah, Steve did it the other day. Oh, yeah, Paris. <laughs> So the move was quite a successful one. He was welcomed with open arms. Oh, mate, yeah, get away from your wife. Yeah, classic. Yeah, Steve's just arrived. <laughs> Do you think there's a group of experts, of like Austrian experts in Paris that have yeah, just yeah. moved away from their wives? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so at the time, Paris was the international capital city of everything. It also featured the two things that make the most fertile breeding ground for novelty. Wealth. And boredom. Hmm. That's a bit like hackney nowadays, am I right? Um, So people already knew about him, so everyone got really excited and wanted a session with the amazing Mesmer. In fact, there were so many that he had to come up with a way to magnetize many people at the same time. Can you see a way to do this from what we know so far? Is it Pringles? Once you pop, you can't stop. How do you use Pringles to magnetise people? Hey, look, if you put me in front of a tube of Pringles, I'm not moving. (laughs) (laughs) You just see me staring into space while I consume. You you have to probably just kind of knock me away from the the tin, whatever it is, the tube. 
That's an interesting approach. Mm. Well, unfortunately, Pringles were not available at the time. Mm. Um, so he had to come up with something a bit more sophisticated, believe it or not. Um, so he How used... dare you? <laughs> I'll have you know, as a reconstituted potato snack, the Pringle is a very sophisticated <laughs> uh, potato-based food. Yes. Mm. So... Um, so he had to use, very sadly, uh, other things like metal and water. Okay. Because remember, they could be magnetised and act as a magnet. So he created this thing called the baquet, which was a, a wooden tub filled with iron filings and bottles of magnetised water. <laughs> iron rods came out of the water bottles. People would sit around, grab the end of a rod and place it on the affected body part. In order to increase the efficacy of the treatment, people would lock fingers and would join together by a rope. Then people would go through a crisis before healing that could take uh, various forms, including laughing, crying, fainting, convulsions. For those who know a bit about psychoanalysis, this will sound familiar. Crises are still considered a part of the process, even though it's more, ah, so it was my father, unless I'm going to shake until my tongue falls off. Shake it, shake it, shake it, shake it, shake it, shake it, shake it like the precursor to hypnotism. God, we're cool. <laughs> Yeah, we got very excited, almost like Mesmer's patients. Good. Good segue, good, hey? Good bring us back on track. Thank yeah. you. I'm a pro. Um, it, it, so the reason why, well, part of the reason why people got really excited was that uh, mystical interpretations of this practice had flourished because he was a Freemason, which had associations with magic because of the kind of new-agey character of the practice. And because, let's face it, despite wanting to be recognised as a serious scientist and forcefully rejecting any relationship with occultism, he kind of went with it. So here's a description of a session with Mesmer from one of my sources. Okay, so I'm quoting. Several writers have left vivid word pictures. It's lovely, isn't it? Word pictures. Mm. <laughs> um, of Mesmer's clinic. The spacious rooms dimly lit and hung with many mirrors uh, because animal magnetism was reflected by mirrors. Of course. As, as, as everyone knows. Um, walls decorated with astrological symbols because, you know, science. Mm. Luxurious carpets, a background of harmonious music skillfully adapted to the general mood. The patients around the baquet amused, awestruck, or passing into crisis, and moving among the company the stately form of Mesmer in his lilac suit, occasionally directing a dose of animal magnetism at a patient by means of a metal wand or of his singularly potent middle finger. Wow. I mean, I can see how some people would look at this and not really think science right <laughs> also his French was terrible so to metal wand and lilac suit you can add speaking gibberish right I'm getting I'm getting a kind of a prince around a hot tub vibe off this yeah you know, like the purple suit mm. the speaking gibberish the, uh, <laughs> the, the 
people in hot tubs. I imagine Prince <laughs> spent quite a lot of time in hot tubs. That sounds about right. Yeah. Perhaps mm. he was just a big fan of Mesmer. That, yeah, might have been. Perhaps that's where he got his famous magnetism from. Indeed. <laughs> mm. <laughs> so Mesmer made a lot of money with this. But he was also quite idealistic about it. He wanted magnetism to become officially recognized for the benefit of humankind. He taught the practice to others. He extended the treatments um, to those who couldn't pay. In his Paris practice, one baquet was always reserved for the poor, who were treated for free. The same happened when a sort of magnetic club called the Lodge of Harmony... Which, incidentally, would be an amazing metal band. (laughs) Yes. Carry on, sorry. That's fair. Um, So the Lodge of Harmony was established and people there could learn from Mesmer himself and from one of his early pupils. That's really cool, actually. I mean, yes, we now know that this is nonsense. But if you truly believed it worked, that's very generous and very public-spirited to to try and bring it to as many people as possible. And this is something that will recur in the history of of magnetism. Mm. Um, Like, everyone seems to be quite altruistic about it, so I think that's kind of nice. So, in 1784, reports on animal magnetism were published, written by two royal commissions, one with experts from the Paris Faculty of Medicine and the Royal Academy of Sciences, and one from the members of the Royal Society of Medicine. Amongst the commissioners for the Royal Academy of Sciences report were Benjamin Franklin, of founding the United States fame. Uh, He also had scientific credentials. He invented stuff. Uh, He was a proper science guy. Anecdotes would have it that he was big on harnessing the power of electricity. Oh, really? Yeah, there's... I mean, it might be... uh, made-up tale, in which case it has no place in this podcast. <laughs> but there is a thing about him trying to, you know, attack, uh, harness lightning with kites. Yeah, so it makes sense that he would be interested in mm. this kind of thing, right? I mean, of course, he was also a powerful man, and these two things went sort of hand-in-hand hand at the time. Mm. You know, you were powerful, you were sort of sciency. please come to a royal commission. Mm. So other people that were, well, let's face it, other men that were mm. both... Powerful and sciency, and into, inside this commission were um, Jean-Sylvain Bailly, who became the mayor of Paris during the first years of the French Revolution, so a few years later than this, and was also an astronomer and a mathematician. Antoine Lavoisier, or the guy who invented chemistry. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Joseph Ignace Guillotin, who was a doctor, as well as the guy who invented... Guess what he invented? <laughs> Is it the thing you use to cut pieces of paper to size, by any chance? <laughs> no. Oh, okay. But you're onto something with the cutting. Okay. <laughs> so, fun fact for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bailly and Lavoisier ended up dying during the revolution, courtesy of the device kindly designed by Guillotin. Oh, nice one, dude. Thanks. I know, right? We worked on a commission, damn it. And this is how you repay us. <laughs> Other fun fact, Bailly, Franklin and Guillotin were all Freemasons. I'm starting to worry there is a conspiracy here, just saying. So, so what's the conspiracy for? What were they aiming at? Well, look, okay. Bailey, Freemason. Franklin, Freemason. Guillotin, Freemason. I'm thinking Illuminati. Right, yeah. Okay. Illuminati of magnetism. Yeah, definitely. So they were trying to hypnotise people into compliance 
Probably. Sure. I mean, we can never be sure of the mm. intentions of the Illuminati, but I don't know. No, I see what you're getting at. So going back to their, you know, kind of mainstream work, um, <laughs> they were not out to find out whether animal magnetism worked as a therapeutic tool, because that's quite a complex question, but whether it existed in the first place. That is because it's hard to pinpoint why a person heals from an ailment. Some things just go away on their own. Um, others would say today that they might have been uh, psychosomatic. So, well, if you found out that animal magnetism didn't exist, you'd know automatically and with certainty that it couldn't cure anything. And it was a physical entity that we're looking for. Some patients swore that they could perceive it, either seeing it emanating from the magnetizer's fingers or feel cold or hot when his hand would get close to their faces. Some could smell it from the wand or fingers. So first, they got magnetized themselves at a clinic. Boys night out. Way! <laughs> Lads on tour. Get yourself down the clinic, get yourself magnetized. Big night out. Yeah. Way. Experts tour. Way. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds incidentally like a really bad um stag do. <laughs> Let's all get magnetized in Paris. <laughs> yeah. Uh Steve Steve seems to come into this a lot. Sure, Steve, yeah. you got that slightly dodgy foot. <laughs> Way. Way. <laughs> um so when they got magnetized, they felt very little and way. nothing. Way. Uh -huh. My foot is still kind of the same. <laughs> but we're together and that's what counts. <laughs> um, and nothing of the things they felt could definitely be linked to magnetism. So next they got lay people in, uh, drawn from various parts of society had them magnetized and interviewed them afterwards. Uh, they were all sick one way or another. Some of them, apparently the poor, did feel some effect, including pain, while others, which the commissioners are keen to let us know are the clever ones, rich people, didn't. They thought that the difference in class had an impact on what they felt, that they were reporting effects out of compliance. There is something to that, but not because poor people are stupid. Yeah, it's actually because poor people are magnetic. Um, it's just, it's, it's, it's weird, but, you know. Is that why they stick together all the time? Yeah, uh, it's, it's, if, you, um, if you put a, a steel can on a poor person, it'll just stick to them. Yeah. Like, a, you know, like that balloon thing you can do with the static electricity. It's just, it's weird, but, you know. That could be a good party trick for rich people yeah. in the 17th century. Just yeah. stick poor people to a piece of steel. <laughs> when I was a student, I mean, walking around a um, recycling centre was lethal. <laughs> you just wouldn't do it. Um, yeah, so this um, was not explored at the time. <laughs> this has more to do with uh, power. So if you see the experimenter as someone that has some kind of privilege over you, you just want to do the right thing. If you assume that the experimenter is right and you are wrong, then the right thing is what they expect. Is this the kind of thing that Milgram experimented with in the 60s? Are you talking about these experiments with electricity where mm. people had to teach someone something by 
essentially prodding them with electricity. Yes, but the the experiment being on the kind of the compliance, do you yes. do it if an authority figure tells you to, even though it you know it's dangerous? Yes, that's mm. that's basically what it is. So Milgram was a psychologist, a social psychologist active in the 60s and 70s. So he he used to kind of manipulate situation and see situations and see what people uh, would do under controlled circumstances. So one of the experiments that he did was basically telling people they had to teach someone a given task or notion and told the subjects that every time the person they were teaching to, so the learner, would get the answer wrong, they had to essentially buzz them with a strong electric current. And so they had this um, device that allowed them to give electric shocks to mm-hmm. the learner. Except the learner, first of all, didn't receive any electricity. And secondly, was part of the experiment. So the learners were never, ever subjects. They were just people who were kind of um, helping out the experimenters mm. and they would pretend to suffer from the electric shocks. Yeah, effectively an actor. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And so what they found out was that, first of all, people were very generous with the electricity. They would just kind of go for it. Mm. And secondly, that they would go for it even more if they were kind of prodded. So if the experimenter told them, you know, that that kind of reminded them that that was their task, they would just do it. And no one questioned the fact that they were hurting someone. Um, And like the the, the take-home message is... Well, certainly people wouldn't want to do that in a normal situation, but they did it because the experimenter um, seemed to expect them to, right? Mm. So, yeah, so that's exactly what it is. And I also read that they did a few, quite a few variations, and one of the variations was that when they, they were just about to start the experiment and the, the person who was saying, do this, do that, the, the authority figure was then called away to make a phone call mm-hmm. and they were replaced with a really ordinary looking person who didn't have any kind of they weren't wearing a lab coat mm-hmm. they were just wearing ordinary clothes and they didn't have the kind of the authority and in that situation the sort of compliance of the subject in administering the electric shocks dropped like about 20%. Yeah, it's amazing. So it was really so dependent on the kind of the authority of the person telling Mm -hmm. them to administer the the shock yeah that's very interesting isn't it Mm. and that's something that psychologists have to control for all the time Mm. still nowadays so it was a good intuition Mm. if uh, kind of shrouded in very classist um language and and narratives Mm. um another thing that they noted um not milgram the magnetist guys (laughs) was that those people who didn't believe in animal magnetism and children didn't respond very well. So they did more rigorous tests such as blindfolding subjects and pretending to magnetize them, so just controlling for these variables, right? Um, Surely enough, people felt sensations like warmth on their skin even though nothing was happening. So eventually the commissioners concluded that imagination, whatever that meant, perhaps would say suggestion today, was responsible for their feelings. Also, there was a worry about moral corruption. 
Often magnetized people were women and they seemed to be at the mercy of the magnetizer during sessions. Um, so this was bound to be misused. And I feel that's quite an astute observation for three powerful men in the 1700s that this is a, a, a technique that could be used by men to take advantage of women. Mm. I, 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 that, that surprises me, actually, because, you know, you kind of think back then, you wouldn't, people wouldn't think about that kind of misuse of power, especially if they were powerful people themselves. Yeah, absolutely. I think one thing to consider that is more fitting with the times mm -hmm. was that um, women were seen as weak people who had to be protected. Right. And so it was a bit like children, essentially. Mm -hmm. So would you, you know, leave a child at the mercy of of someone? You, you wouldn't because you you wouldn't trust them, right? Mm. Um, and so, well... To be fair, it would be more like, would you leave a child at the mercy of a paedophile, mm. essentially? That, that's kind of the same sort of mindset. So it wasn't really a case of um, exploring the power dynamic between men and women, but more of giving the power dynamic as a given, because women are weak and men are in power, and wanting to protect the weaker one. But but yeah, but you're right that they were very self-aware mm. in that. Like, I do think that that was quite impressive. Mm. Um, that is correct. So the, the outcome of this was that Mesmer didn't really suffer too much from it from a public opinion standpoint, but he did suffer from a scientific point of view. Scientists were not taking him seriously. But he was a hit with the public. He was a hit mm. with the public. And with other people, <laughs> which exported mesmerism, essentially. Wonder Cupboard. One, one interesting story starts from uh, France and goes all the way to um, Haiti. So um, there was this French naval officer, Antoine Yacinthe, and the Chastenay de Puisigur, which I am not going to name with his full name ever again. <laughs> he was known as Comte de Chastenay. Or For Ch understandable reasons. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to call it Chastenay because that's it. Okay. End of. Um, um, so he ended up in, in Haiti, which um, was um, a French colony at the time and was known as Saint-Domingue. He had been treated successfully for asthma with animal magnetism. Um, so he started magnetizing people himself. In 1784, when he ended up in Saint-Domingue, he founded a magnetic society there. Initially, of course, magnetism was taken up by the white colonizers, right, who used it to cure themselves, but also on the African people that they held as slaves. It was used as a cure when they were ill, but also as a way for slaveholders to, like, make the most of their investment. Mm. That's how they would have put it. Obviously, it's a very dehumanizing way of putting it, but mm. that was sort of their reasoning. So there were these tales of batches of weak slaves that were bought, bought for cheap, whose condition improved thanks to magnetism, thereby increasing their monetary value. What the French hadn't considered, though 
was that the slaves would appropriate the practice that ended up having a sort of revolutionary flavour. Magnetism mixed with other traditional practices and was used by slaves to heal other slaves who paid them money. So there were so many issues with this from the standpoint of the white colonizers. First of all, it was illegal for slaves to be professional healers. So that was seen as an act of defiance. Often treatments were administered to groups of people and gatherings of slaves were frowned upon. Sometimes machetes, commonly used in agriculture, were included in the practice. Except, you know, machetes can easily be used to commit violence as well. Talismans were made that were supposed to protect from violence perpetrated by other slaves, but also by white slave owners. So slaves, together with weapons, not something white people wanted to have under the roof. I read a particularly interesting story about four of these healers whose names were Jérôme, Télémaque, Jeanne and Julien. They were encouraging their fellow slaves to rebel against the white authority. This created a lot of serious concern amongst whites. It's not really clear what happened to them as a result. Um, Julien seems to have been found innocent The others were definitely convicted of various violations of the law, but Jérôme and Télémaque might have escaped. Uh, Jean was hanged. And in some accounts, uh, he was hanged as sort of a scapegoat because um, uh, Jérôme and Télémaque uh, had, might have not um, been victims of any punishment. And you know... The interesting thing about this is that Haitian slaves did eventually rebel against their masters in a big way. The Haitian Revolution started in 1791, so more or less at the same time as the French Revolution started in France, which I think is quite an interesting mm. counterpart. The revolution in, in Haiti was entirely led by former slaves and ended in 1804 with the independence of the Empire of Haiti. There are accounts of Mesmer bragging that Haiti reached independence thanks to him. <laughs> so he was quite proud of it. And the practice resisted, mingling with the local voodoo cult. And, and to this day, voodoo priests are called metiseurs, which is a contraction of the French word for magnetizer, magnetiseur. That's amazing. Yeah, it's wonderful, isn't it? Can we have a French, a cool French contraction for podcaster? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm thinking like a Pod tour. Sounds good. Like it. Uh, I don't know whether there's any better improvement on that. Um, I don't really know how you would translate literally podcast in French. There probably isn't uh, a good uh, translation for it, is it. That'll be one of those words where the French language commission is going, right, can't have people saying podcasting. We need to come up with something <laughs> French for this. Yeah, exactly. Like ordinateur, which yeah, is exactly. computer, right? Mm. Yeah. So I, I'm sure they have a good word for it. Yeah. So from Haiti and Chastanet, the practice kind of got back to France. Okay. Okay, so Chastanet had a brother mm -hmm. uh, whose name was, and again, I, I'm kind of gearing up for this, Amand-Marie Jacques de Chastanet, Marquis de Puisagur. <laughs> Can you imagine in the sort of, uh, when they were naming them, I think he looks like an 
Armand Marie. Yeah, Armand Marie, that looks real. No, I haven't finished. Armand <laughs> Marie Jacques de. Can you imagine at school? You know, at the <laughs> beginning when they say all the names. Jean, I... oui. <laughs> Guillaume, oui. Armand Marie Jacques de Chastenay. Armand Marie Jacques de Chastenay. You haven't said the full thing. Armand <laughs> Marie Jacques de Chastenay, Marquis de Puisgate. Oui. <laughs> Yeah, so he was known as Puisseur, so Good, okay. I'm sticking to Puisseur, yeah. <clears throat> and that's it. Sue me. <laughs> so he became one of the most important figures in animal magnetism in France. He started by magnetizing the daughter of his estate manager, who uh, suffered from a bad toothache, and apparently it was done as a joke. Mm. And it just doesn't sound very funny. It sounds like kind <laughs> of a posh joke thing, doesn't it? Oh, look, we're going like, to go and magnetize people. Is that posh? No, that's not posh. That's more like laddie. <laughs> I, what's my posh voice? I forgot. I, I am going to magnetize people for fun. <laughs> that'll do, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Cool. Yeah, anyway, it just it just doesn't sound like a funny pastime. Not really, no. Like, what's up with all these people thinking that it's fun? Yeah. Anyway, I mean, I suppose it's kind of the same thing as getting a lot of painkillers. <sighs> I mean, I know people who like interactions between alcohol and painkillers for fun, but that doesn't sound very healthy. No, that's a very bad idea. That is a very bad idea. Nah. Anyway. At least the most you could suffer from here is being poked by a metal rod in a bathtub. Yeah, feeling slightly warm on your ankle. Mm. Mm. So anyway, the the pain went away for this young lady. And that's something that will stick as a fundamental feature of magnetism. Being magnetized makes you feel no pain. The other thing that magnetism does to people is they exhibit behaviors or skills that they don't have when they're not in a magnetic state. That's also something that Puisegur experienced with his patients. Uh, Victor Ras, a young peasant that was suffering from a lung condition, was magnetized and fell into something described as a sleep. He didn't seem to connect with the outside world and was talking about his problems. Then he started dancing, pretending to be shooting <laughs> and doing other seemingly meaningless activities. Puisegur thought this might be harmful and just just worried about him. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, he sang to him for an hour. Right. Uh, <laughs> just to calm him down. And, you know, that worked. And then when he snapped out of this state, Puisegur made him some soup. That's very nice. That's lovely, isn't it? So, was the flavour of soup recorded? Sadly not. Um, we can imagine soup au if we want to be super stereotypical. Yeah, I was thinking probably that sounds like leek and potato to me. You think it's a leek yeah, and potato situation, definitely. isn't it? That'll make me snap out of any kind of vegetative <laughs> state. Victor didn't remember anything that happened during the session. Um, so this was seen as some kind of sleepwalking. Anyway, the treatment worked and Puisegur got a reputation among the local peasants. He happily helped them out by devising a countryside version of the baquet. He magnetized a tree. <laughs> This is one of my favorite things about magnetizing. Okay. Because I, I can just picture people gathering around this tree mm. um, and, and being magnetized. Um, so the, the tree was a large elm from which cords were hung 
because, you know, it was the countryside version. So it's like the rustic version. Well, like the bouquet was more kind of industrial. If you okay. Yeah. 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 Um, so here I'm looking more for like anthropology than Oliver Bonus, if you mm. see what I mean. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, so benches were arranged around it and people would sit on them, link fingers and hold the cords. At some point, more than 100 people showed up for one single treatment. Sounds like my local GP's waiting room. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. And you don't want to link finger w- fingers with any of those mm. suckers over there. It would be good if they had a little electronic sign that just went, boop, Mr. <laughs> Anton to chord number seven. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Puisegur would intervene when people were having crises. Apparently, he could make them do whatever he wanted. And you see how this practice is starting to look like hypnosis. The absence of pain, the trance, the subjugation to the hypnotist. If a crisis was really bad, Puisegur would tell the patients to hug the tree. Mm -hmm. Uh, Continuing continuing with this tradition of just lovely ways to treat things. (laughs) Just go hug a tree, mate. Mm, It's lovely. Put down your soup, hug the tree. (laughs) This sounds so nice. (laughs) And there's something else that may sound familiar in an innovation that Puisegur added to the Mesmerian canon. He thought that the way the magnetic fluid worked had to do with the relationship between the magnetizer and the patient. Their respective magnetic fluids had to mingle with each other. And that's why the patient will do what the magnetizer tells them. Again, this idea of a healing relationship between patient and therapist will feed into psychotherapy later on. Probably thanks to his connections with the Freemasonry, uh, because Puisagur was a Freemason himself. See? See? <laughs> At the end of the 18th century, animal magnetism started spreading around Europe, taking various local forms. In Switzerland, it was used to cure various ailments, um, and they they used extensively the idea of establishing a rapport with the patient. In Germany, it was used to dig up lost memories. And again, it's like hypnosis, blah, blah, blah. I think we should like find a way to patch this. Like I could come up with noise that I make every time something sounds like either modern psychoanalysis or hypnosis. Because like, if this was a visual medium, I'll give like a knowing look to the camera. <laughs> but like I could do like I could do the knowing voice. Maybe we could use the sound that the hypnotoad makes in Futurama. What is it? Wah! <laughs> I love it. Yeah. And the grand prize winner, the hypnotoad. All glory to the hypnotoad. Okay, I'm gonna do that from now on. Is it? We were yeah. We got to Germany. Uh, and, and that's also where it starts to gain some respect from the scientific community. Now, a coincidence helped. I don't know how many people know who Luigi Galvani was. Um, and those who know will probably think the frog legs guy, which is reasonable. He discovered that nerves are activated by electricity. One of the key experiments for this was attaching electrodes to the legs of dead frogs, which twitched. I do wonder how many other things he tried to make twitch before and after that discovery. Like, was, did he try a lot of things and then it worked with frog's legs? 
or did he find the frog's legs? And was, right, what else can I make twitch? <laughs> I think he's hunted from the frog's legs. Okay. Yeah. He might have had them to hand for, you know, dinner. Yeah. I mean, yeah, in some parts of Italy you do eat frogs. Sure. So why not? Yeah. So he came up with this idea that there is an electric fluid going through the brain and nerves. Now, that's not quite how it works to our current understanding, but electricity is involved, so well done him. And actually, the first battery was created by another Italian, Alessandro Volta, based on his research. Now, electricity is generated by changes in a magnetic field, hence what is known as electromagnetism. So if animal electricity existed, animal magnetism made good sense. In fact, one supporter of this theory was Alexander von Humboldt, who was a sort of sciencey guy. He didn't really discover anything, but he did explorations and collected data and just faffed about in his basement a lot. And he has a species of penguin named after him. I mean, which I, so I like this guy. Yeah, it is lovely, isn't it? Yeah. It's like, why have a street or a building named after you if you can have penguins? And I looked him up on Wikipedia as well. Mm. He actually has a lot of stuff named after him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Species and all sorts. But I, I, I saw Humboldt and I was like, penguin. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you see a lot of things and go penguin. Oh, that is true, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so anyway, he was very rich, so that's why we know all these things about him, to be <laughs> fair. But at some point, he believed to have demonstrated that you can activate nerves with electricity without touching them. This is not quite true. You can't really do that. As in, I mean, there's still air between things. Mm. So it's not like the electricity jumps over. Right, it's like, okay, you know, yeah. there is a medium. There was always a medium that you could identify. Mm. So no one get excited about this. <laughs> um, but, you know, who got excited? Animal magnetists mm. who were delighted. Because... Mm. That meant that waving their hands around people sounded like a legit way to influence their bodies. That there was a magnetic atmosphere surrounding them. There are a lot of case studies that talk about people being healed by animal magnetism, but also exhibiting supernatural powers like clairvoyance. Some are quite impressive, um, like there were people that managed to read um, things that were inside an envelope and things like that. But we don't really know how they achieved this. So we don't know if there was some cheating, if the reports are uh, misleading somehow. We're not really sure. Anyway, from Germany, animal magnetism travelled to Russia, where it was claimed by physicists, because, you know, they claim everything. <laughs> but eventually it just kind of died out and there is also some evidence of animal magnetism being practiced in Scandinavian countries. You're listening to Wonder Cupboard. We are at the end of the 18th century. And we all know what happened in 1789, right? Was it that everyone was celebrating the last time there would be three consecutive digits in a year until 2012? No. Okay, because <laughs> that's that's what leapt to my mind. But it, it was the French Revolution. Oh yeah, the, 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 the other, other one. one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so 
Apparently, people at that point were not in the mood for linking fingers with strangers anymore. <laughs> and immediately after Napoleon Bonaparte took power and healthcare improved. In 1801, a triage system was put in place in Paris. You could go to a central hospital, the uh, Hôtel Dieu, and they would refer you to local clinics or specialists. Emergency care was also provided, and tens of thousands of people benefited from it. You can see how this reduced the need for people to seek alternative care. Fringe medicine flourishes when people are not able to find reliable, affordable health care. But Puisigur just wouldn't let it go. Oh, come on, dude. She's just not into you anymore. You need to move on. He should have had a hobby. He needed a hobby to just take his mind off it, meet new pseudoscientific theories. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but yeah, apparently he just couldn't find any. So he started a campaign to revamp animal magnetism. It's very embarrassing. I know, right? He would publish cases, give lectures. Eventually, official medicine started to take notice because they kind of had to. Due to pressure from students, the Hotel Dieu started trialing mesmerism on patients. The magnetizer um, in residence was called Dupoté. His full name again <laughs> was Jean-Denis Baron Dupoté. That's not so bad by other people's standards. Yeah, but come on. <laughs> um, quite a lot of investigation followed. I won't go into detail because it's terribly boring, but basically a series of experiments and committees were established to test animal magnetism. Again. Yes. Uh, one astonishing result, though, was the use of magnetism as an anesthetic. Apparently, surgical operations were carried out under hypnosis, with the patient remaining unconscious. This was huge. At the time, there were no anesthetics, but that didn't dissuade people from surgery. Patients were held down by at least four people at a time, while the surgeon tried to operate quickly and while ignoring the screams of agony of the patient. A good surgeon was not a precise one, it was a quick one. You can see how there's a trade-off here. As well as agonizing pain inflicted on patients, which incidentally surgeons didn't really give a toss about, (laughs) the success of operations was hindered by the fact that in order to act quickly, precision was lost. The promise of pain-free surgery was a holy grail for the medical community. There are quite a lot of case reports describing successful operations carried out in the first half of the 19th century. You have your ordinary dental surgeries, limb amputations, the removal of breasts and large glands, tumours, the lot. You would have a magnetizer in the room, a different person from the surgeon, who would like wave their hands about, (laughs) (laughs) touch the patients and so forth until the patient fell asleep. Then the surgeon would step in and carry out the operation. This contributed to the success of mesmerism in the US and the UK, where it arrived um, relatively late. So the US is an interesting one. Um, Magnetism was, well, animal magnetism Mm. (laughs) was introduced uh, to the States by two uh, mesmerism enthusiasts who were teaching French in the States in the 1830s. One of them, whose name was Poyang, 
was more successful than the other, writing and lecturing about it in the Boston area. For reasons unknown, while it was mostly ignored in the rest of the country, it really spoke to the people of Providence and Pawtucket in Rhode Island. Okay. Uh, They just couldn't get enough of it. So the then president of Brown University supported it, and so did the Bishop of Connecticut. Local doctors learned how to mesmerize their patients. The mystical component of mesmerism immediately emerged, with the Miss Brackett allegedly being able to read inside sealed envelopes and have clairvoyant visions. So far, pretty standard. And pretty devastating to a game of deal or no deal. (laughs) The unusual part was that people became missionaries. In the 1840s, mesmerism in America was taken as a gospel that needed to be spread around the country. The missionaries were touring, mesmerizing people in public, and people loved it. Several booklets that served as mesmerism for dummies type thing were published. And after some resistance, the medical community also caved. At the same time, something similar was happening in Britain with Dupoté. Who is Dupoté, do we remember? The first magnetizer at the Hotel Du. Very good had convinced, so he had convinced the local doctor, John Elliotson, to give it a try. Elliotson was employed at the University of London, now UCL. Woo! That's that's where I am. <laughs> I'm at UCL. That's why I get excited about this. Um, I'm not at UCL, so I'm just going to boo. <laughs> I really have neutral feelings towards UCL. <laughs> So he was employed there um, for a large part of his career and spent a huge amount of time experimenting with mesmerism. He was involved in the foundation of University College Hospital, where mostly poor people were treated. This was in line with UCL's character, a young university at that point, which was founded with democratic ideals in mind. Woo! Boo! <laughs> no, actually, that sounds pretty good. That is pretty good, isn't it? Mm. At the time, it was the only university in Great Britain to be entirely secular and to admit flexible studying. People could just take one course if they wished to. They didn't have to live in London. Uh, Well, you know, Cambridge, Oxford, you had to live there, which was Mm. obviously expensive and so forth. And teachers were paid by student fees. It was quite a progressive environment. In fact, so progressive that King's College was founded straight after to counteract the influence of UCL. (laughs) They were like, well, what, what's up with these liberals? That Let's put a conservative stronghold on the other side of the road. <laughs> All right, chill out. Elliotson's most famous patients were Elizabeth and Jane Oakey, two teenage sisters that suffered from epilepsy. The sisters were magnetized publicly for didactic reasons and started exhibiting unusual behaviors when they were hypnotized. Described as modest, demure girls in their waking state, they would become feisty and cheeky when in mesmeric sleep. Elizabeth, in particular, put on quite the show. She would openly flirt with members of the audience, sitting on their laps, mocking them playfully, behaving in a way that was considered overtly sexual at the time. Let us remember this was Victorian England. Ankles were sexy. Imagine what it would have looked like to have a woman in your power who would do anything you told her to and was being seductive at the same time. 
Over time, Elizabeth started taking liberties with Elliotson as well, calling him a fool in front of the audience, teasing him and refusing to do what he said. In fact, Elliotson's career was in serious jeopardy because of these displays. At that point, he was considered closer to an entertainment than a serious physician. The question no one could answer was, was Elizabeth Oakey taking the mickey? Consider the fact that she was a 17-year-old working-class girl who was living at the hospital on and off for months at a time as these demonstrations progressed. She might simply have found it more comfortable and amusing than being at home and dragging on the show, making it more and more interesting, was the only way to stay there. Whatever the answer to this question, another side of this relationship was questionable. Again... Elizabeth Oakey was a 17-year-old working-class girl, depending on the whims of an older, relatively powerful man who would force her to spend most of her waking life being exhibited as a freak in front of other older, relatively powerful men. Let's face it, for their amusement. Part of the demonstrations with the Oakeys and other patients also involved um, testing their reactions. Elliotson would go along with pretty much any test suggested by the audience. Because, you know, if it was good enough for surgery, it's good enough for anything else, right? With another patient, Hannah Hunter, Michael Faraday, yes, that one. Hmm. Um, of was cage fame. Of cage fame. Um, so he got involved and he first said, and I quote, rude remarks to her, but she reportedly didn't blush as was expected. Then he suggested bleeding her and cauterizing the wound with hot metal. She didn't respond, even when Elliotson pretended to bind her arm to do it. Elizabeth was once hooked to a galvanic battery for three full minutes while in trance. Apparently she contracted her hands and that was all she did that was not considered, incidentally, a sign of her feeling pain. When members of the audience tried doing the same, so being hooked to the same battery, they couldn't resist for more than 30 seconds. Okay. At some point, Elizabeth was asked how she felt. She said, and, and I quote, suppose I had a doll and stuck a wire up it and then pulled it and threw its extremities about. That's how it shoots through me. Elliotson replied, shall I bring you to yourself again? To which she said, to myself? What does that mean? Am I ever anybody else? She had lost any sense of identity. Whatever her motives were, the impact on her had been huge. One last thing about the Okies. Over time, they became sort of like auxiliary staff at the hospital. They would help diagnose people, do the rounds, point at those whom they thought were pretending to be mesmerised. Other patients were told to mesmerise each other. This is again something that seeped into psychoanalysis. Sorry. <laughs> In order to be an analyst, you have to go into analysis yourself. So it's sort of a ritual of initiation, and uh, some believe that this is where it started. Experiments were carried by other people as well. A doctor called John Wilson 
convinced his friends and family to have their pets and farmyard animals mesmerized. <laughs> With alternate fortunes. Okay. <laughs> so he managed to make cats fall asleep. Right. Okay. A- an animal famous for being <laughs> lively and awake at all times. <laughs> yes, but you know, if a cat doesn't want you to do something to them, they will they make will it clear, away, right? Yeah. And this cat to the credit of John Wilson, <laughs> um, could afterwards be suspended and tickled without any reaction. Interesting. So, you know, fair play so far. Is it possible he was supremely boring? <laughs> it is very likely. <laughs> he got a female terrier named Vic to cuddle up with Fuzzy the cat. <laughs> um, apparently in his reports, he writes all the names of the animals, but none of the owners. Right, okay. Which I think is fair practice. Mm. Not very easy to mesmerise ducks, (laughs) Um, even though two out of three mesmerised ducks died one month later in mysterious circumstances. Freemasons, (laughs) right? It's all adding up. (laughs) You know what? You have me on board on this one. Mm. Other very receptive animals, a bunch of Thames fish that got so into it, they allowed him to stroke them. Okay. More success was obtained with, and I quote, geese, turkeys, a calf, some pigs, three muckles, Laura, Mac and Carl, <laughs> and, and the famous but unidentified racehorse. <laughs> <laughs> so emboldened by his success, eventually he went for the big shot. <laughs> Even bigger than the famous racehorse. Right, okay. And showed up at the Surrey Zoological Gardens near Vauxhall. Um, first, he tries. Uh, he tried on two leopards, but he was informed that they slept most of the day anyway. Right. Okay. A lioness didn't care for him. Okay. Just ignored him. Um, finally, he tried on Raja and Haji, two sealion elephants, who became first aggressive. Which you know, you get this guy waving his hands around. Mm. Fair. Uh, And then they had a bit of a nap. But he was, like, a bit uncertain of what would happen next. So before he made any real damage, he just kind of left. (laughs) Which I think was a good decision. Mm. So mesmerism became huge and controversial at the same time in Britain due to all this activity around it. But there were some celebrity endorsements from people like Charles Dickens and Ada Lovelace. Oh, Ada. I expect more from her. Like, you expect <laughs> that kind of nonsense from Dickens. But Ada was a woman of science and logic. Yeah, she was the first programmer. Yeah. Ugh, I don't know what, oh, well, what came mind. onto her. Uh, perhaps that came from the Byron side of the family. Yeah. 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 Back to magnetism. Scathing reports on it were published on The Lancet, um, which is a peer-reviewed medical journal nowadays. It's very well known within the community. Um, At the time, it was a new journal, which also started as an anti-establishment publication. Incidentally, the story of The Lancet is fascinating, and I think we should do an episode about it at some point because it's just wonderful. So stay tuned for that. In, in this particular instance, the Lancet would send people undercover to look at the experiments um, and slay Elliot's on a regular basis. 
So people would pretend to be students and follow him around mm. and then just report on what happened on the theatre. It was quite an amazing uh, kind of investigative journalism yeah. project. Research into mesmerism also kept into account what was happening in the medical field more generally. For instance, phrenology, which for those not acquainted was the theory of the brain which claimed that the brain was divided up in areas, so so far so good, that made up different organs, each for a different mental skill. So uh, we're already starting to get out of what we know nowadays. And whose shape and size influenced behavior and the shape of the skull, which is wrong. That's just not the case, okay? So it's basically that kind of thing whereby... You know, there's a part of the brain that does food and there's a part of the brain that does walking yeah. and there's a part of the brain that does happiness and that sort of thing. Yeah, and there's a part of the brain, of the brain that does crime. So, like, there were phrenologists at the time who would uh, theorise that you could tell whether a person was inclined to be a criminal by looking at their skull. Right. Um, incidentally, the, the main proponent of this uh, branch of criminology and also considered one of the founders of criminology was Cesare Lombroso, who is from my hometown. <laughs> I do recommend the Lombroso Museum in Turin, though. It's a wonderful place to go. Even if a bit controversial, but I think it's very interesting. They just won't let you in if your head's not the right shape. <laughs> yeah, there's um, the door basically has like a cat out <laughs> of the right shape. And um, it's a bit like when you go, uh, when you get on a plane and you have to put your hand luggage in the thing, you know, yeah. to see whether it fits. Yeah. Same, but with skulls. Yeah. That's how we do it. <laughs> um, so anyway, we've got magnetism. We've got phrenology. Why not smash them together, right? <laughs> Sounds like a great idea, mate. Well, let's do it. So they tried to stimulate different areas on mesmerized patients to see just what would happen. Mm -hmm. So, like, while the, the science was bollocks, the experimental protocols were actually outstanding. So in order to minimize influence, the ideal setting would be for both patient and mesmerizers to be entirely ignorant of phrenology. Which, you know, this was made easy by the fact that anyone can mesmerize anyone as long as they have been mesmerized in the first place. What was quite hard to achieve was finding someone that didn't know what phrenology was. Because phrenology was everywhere. It was the dominating theory of mm -hmm. the brain at the time. Also, the patient's reactions were extremely vague. The reports of Elliotson touching areas on a patient's head with his finger and the patient somehow reacting. Like, self-esteem, the patient moved his fingers away and talked in the haughtiest manner, <laughs> whatever that means, uh, aggressiveness, and she again moved his fingers away and fell into a passion, and so on and so forth. Just, I, I, I assume this is Victorian for... She bragged about her car and mm. shouted at the telly. Yeah. Whatevs. They also tried to mesmerize only one half of the brain, hoping that the corresponding half of the body would behave independently. And lo and behold, it did happen, except the influence was on the half that was on the same side as the brain hemisphere that had been mesmerized. 
And we now know that each hemisphere controls the opposing side of the body. So that doesn't work out, does it? Yeah, that doesn't. So, so whoever was being experimented upon was doing what was expected of them. Yes. That's a very good indication of it, isn't it? It's, I think it's a very neat way mm. of showing that. Anyway, the, this idea of mesmeric fluid persisted up until the mid-1800s in one form or another. Uh, sadly, no magnetic fluids appear to have been reliable, reliably detected ever. Then mesmerism in that form became sort of obsolete. Um, chloroform started being used in surgery and it was more convenient and reliable than having some guy waving his hands around for half an hour before the operation. And the rest became hypnosis and psychoanalysis. So there you go. That's the history of mesmerism. Shall we do the references? Yeah. And now, the references. Most of the um, information that went into this um, episode comes from A History of Hypnotism, which is a book by Alan Gold. Uh, the quote at the beginning with the description of uh, Mesmer in his lilac suit comes from it. It's a very evocative book. I mean, it's it's huge book, but it's very interesting. Uh, well, the inspiration for the episode, so the thing that made me think that it would be good to talk about it, is a book called The Mesmerist by Veronica Moore, um, which is entirely about Eliotson. Um, it gives you a lot of details uh, about his work, about his relationship with um, the Lancet and with wider society. Um, it says a lot about the Oki sisters. It's, it's a lovely book. It's very well written. It's very entertaining. I wholeheartedly recommend it as a like beach read if you're interested in this. On the healers in um, Haiti, there's this book by Carol Weaver called uh, Medical Revolutionaries, which is entirely about it, if you're interested to know more about that. I can't vouch for it because I haven't read the whole thing, but the bit that I've read was very good. And there are other sources that I've used that are a bit smaller, like papers about um, Napoleonic medicine and um, Haiti and, and whatnot. Um, I'm going to put those links um, on the um, on the website. Um, another book that I feel like recommending, even though I haven't used it directly for this this time, but it's where all my background on the history of dynamic psychology comes from so psychoanalysis and, and whatnot is something known as the ellenberger okay so if you know sounds what book... delicious <laughs> yeah it sounds like dessert doesn't it <laughs> never thought about it so if something is known as the such and such you know that that's the book you want okay yeah right so it's called the discovery of the unconscious it's a two-volume book I'm not saying it's a light read, <laughs> but it is a worthwhile one. So if you're interested in this kind of thing and you want to start somewhere, start from that. Um, again, there will be uh, details on the website if you wish to know more about this. And you should because it's great. Yes. <laughs> uh, the website is wondercover.com. If you go on there, you'll see all the other episodes. Yeah. Uh, and you'll see all the references uh, in more detail with links and also references for other episodes and links to our social media, 
and a silly picture of the both of us. It's really got it all going on. Yeah. com. It's a great place. <laughs> Trademark. It's a one website party. It certainly is. <laughs> Do we need to tell people about more ways to get in touch? Yes. Twitter. You can tweet at us at WonderCupboard. Mm-hmm. You can suggest topics that you would like us to cover. You can tell us that we are wrong about something. You can tell us that we're lovely. You can tell us whatever you like, as long as you are nice. We are on Facebook. You can just look for Wonder Cupboard. And Instagram, where we occasionally put pictures of random things, really, that sort of relate to episodes but also just generally the history of science and technology and things that we find interesting it's not at wonder cupboard <laughs> it's at wonder cupboard podcast there you go but if you search for wonder cupboard you'll find us you'll find us and you'll see our lovely logo which i have drawn <laughs> um so you'll recognize us it's all gonna be fine it's gonna be fine just, just get a cup of tea. And another thing as well, if you enjoyed this episode, something that's really good for us is, and this, that helps us to make more, is to subscribe to it. You can find us on iTunes. Mm. An iTunes subscription is great. Obviously, it's free. You click subscribe, and it just means you'll get the next episode straight away uh, when we publish it. Um, you can also subscribe on Spotify now. We're on Spotify. Go and find us. It, whichever you find most convenient, go for it subscriptions are great yeah and also you know ratings are great ratings are great reviews, reviews are, great, are great but crucially only if you liked it, it it's really yeah you know it'd just be a waste of your time to leave anything other than a five-star review yeah exactly mm. and i agree on that so there you go that's it just to wrap up what have we learned today i think today we've learned that if you're a vegetarian don't try to mesmerize a duck <laughs> Wonder Cupboard.